So what I'd like to reflect on in the talk this evening is around the theme of understanding the inner critic or the judgmental mind. And I'd like to begin by telling you a little bit of a story. And it's important to remember that a lot of Buddhist teaching comes through the form of stories and parables and you know, sometimes they're kind of wild and wonderful, and you have to remember they are teaching stories, not necessarily literal truths. So one of the stories that's very, very um, central and pivotal, I think, in this whole teaching is the story of the Buddha-to-be, the young Siddhartha, meeting with Mara, And Mara in this teaching is kind of this sort of uh, personification of everything that can go wrong. Mara is a sort of personification of everything that can distract us from where we want to be going. Mara is a personification of everything that undermines our motivation, our intentionality. Mara is actually a great big walking hindrance. So the way the story goes is the young Siddhartha is sitting under the Bodhi tree on the eve of his awakening. And Mara came to assail him with all his arrows to distract him from his path. And so it often says Mara came with his hordes and his armies. So the young Siddhartha was assailed by Mara's arrows of restlessness, of aversion, of craving, of doubt, of fear. And in reality, this, this is a story of Siddhartha meeting his own mind, just like we meet our own mind. It's the story of Siddhartha meeting everything that a mind and heart can do to keep us entangled in confusion and fear and anxiety and depression and a sense of being imprisoned. And it's said in this story that Siddhartha saw so clearly that only as long as he allowed these forces to intimidate him, to frighten him, did these forces hold the power to deny him the freedom he really longed for. And it's said in the story that when Siddhartha could stop being intimidated and look Mara in the eye and say, and stop fleeing and say, I know you. Just that. I know you. That Mara disappeared and dissolved. In fact, in the story, all of the arrows of Mara were turned into flowers, and it all gets very, you know, sort of lovely. But, but in a way, really, Mara just couldn't get a grip. Couldn't get a grip in the face of Siddhartha saying, just, I know you. 
Now, I think this story, in a way, holds you know, the essence of, of much of this teaching, and it's certainly one of the great pivotal pieces of mindfulness, that all of the ways that we can feel beset by problems and difficulties and obstacles, the greatest power that these obstacles and difficulties hold is their power to intimidate us. And as long as we are intimidated, we will try to flee. But when we can stop still and look at many of the difficulties and obstacles in the eye, just like Siddhartha did, and say, I know you, then the problems and the difficulties may indeed still be difficult. But we also see that in, it is in the midst of all of these that we actually learn to transform our hearts. This is the teaching of imminence, very central to the Buddhist teaching. If you really reflect upon it, where do you learn about patience? When everything's just going well and swimmingly? Do you learn much about patience there? You know, where do you learn about, about loving kindness? You know, when you're surrounded by people who flatter you and love you and care about you. You know, where do you learn about compassion in the easiest moments in our lives? You know, when we're sheltered from all difficulty? Actually, no. We don't learn some of these most ennobling and liberating qualities in the most idyllic moments of our lives. We actually learn them in looking Mara in the eye. Now, the story of Siddhartha meeting Mara is, is a, certainly a story that many of you will have heard many times But you will notice that there is one outstanding visitor or obstacle that doesn't seem to get mentioned. And that is the judging mind, the inner critic, the ongoing song of self-blame, of shame, of comparing, of belittlement, of contempt, that shadows the lives and hearts, certainly, of many of the people that you will work with, and it may, you may have had a few intimations of this in your own life. The judgmental mind that can accompany us, actually, through our day, fault-finding, comparing, condemning, such a familiar presence for many people that it's even hard to imagine a life free of the inner critic. In fact, so familiar can the judgmental mind be that it can almost seem to be a sort of central and an integral part of who we are. Now, this may be a completely irrelevant topic for some of you, in which case, you know, feel free to take a nap. Um, But if this has has any bearing, you know, I, I think it might be something worth exploring together. And it is clear that whenever the judgmental mind is operating, whenever the inner critic is operating, it is a place of suffering. It is painful. 
And something that causes so much misery simply can't be exempted from the practice. You know, you can see so much of our practice here is contemplating our body, contemplating feelings. So much of our practice here is sitting and walking. Um, But the fact is that if this tendency to be judgmental, to be adversely critical, if this tendency is not attended to in the light of awareness, then in fact, it will probably color and distort everything that we do in practice. In fact, some people find that when they begin a meditation practice, it's almost like there's even more fuel for the inner judge, you know, because suddenly they've got a whole new array, it seems, of expectations and aspirations, you know. It used to be they were just supposed to be nice, you know. Now they're supposed to be equanimous, enlightened, you know, calm, peaceful, you know, compassionate. It's like we've got a whole new big portfolio with which to judge ourselves. Now, before we turn our attention to really looking or unpacking the judgmental mind somewhat, is a very important distinction, I think a very crucial distinction I want to make between the inner critic or judgmental mind and our capacities for discernment and discriminating wisdom. Now, I want to make it so clear that this practice has never in any way had a suggestion of retiring discriminating wisdom or retiring our capacity for discernment. In other words, you're not supposed to leave your intelligence outside the door with your shoes. You know, you're actually meant to bring it into the practice, to develop it in the practice, and to develop this capacity for discernment. The Buddha talks about it so much, so much, to develop this capacity. If you really look at discernment, it's what got us here. You know, it's, it's, it's the wish to, to find the ways to end distress and struggle. Um, discernment gets us out of bed in the morning instead of putting the pillow over our heads and going to sleep for another two hours. We think there's something worthy to actually get up for. Discernment moves us, moves us to reach out and touch another um, when we see pain. Discernment act, leads us to act in ways to bring suffering and pain and harm to an end. You know, discernment brings us back into the hall rather than hanging out in the delights of Denbury. It keeps, it's what keeps us showing up when everything seems impossible. Discernment, discriminating wisdom, discernment is the source of every wise action, word, and choice we take. It's the source of every step we take that leads to the end of suffering. And discriminating wisdom is is a capacity of the mind that draws upon ethics, that draws upon compassion, and that actually really teaches us to find the Buddha in ourselves and in others. A judgmental mind is very, a very, very different creature. We might still get out of bed in the morning. We might still sit 
and walk. But we might even still show up. But every step of the way, we will be berating and scolding ourselves for being stupid, unworthy, inadequate, not good enough, endlessly making mistakes. And you can really see that the judgmental mind is drawing not on the Buddha, but the judgmental mind is really drawing on Mara. It's drawing upon confusion. It's drawing upon aversion. It's drawing upon ill will and delusion. And rarely, rarely is the judgmental mind the source of wise action, thought, or speech. And it hardly leads to the end of suffering. Because the judgmental mind is suffering and it compounds suffering. And rarely does the inner critic actually see the Buddha in ourselves or others. Instead, it sees always what is imperfect. And we really actually in so many ways actually see the harm that is inflicted by that tendency upon ourselves and others, suffocating a sense of possibility. So hopefully, anyway, hopefully I can put this one to bed. We've made this clear, the distinction between discriminating wisdom and the inner critic. Discriminating wisdom is absolutely necessary, useful, helpful. The, uh, the inner judge is actually pretty much useless, for one thing, um, certainly unhelpful and quite possibly optional. That's the good news. Quite possibly optional. Roshi Kenneth, a Zen teacher, once said that the training of liberation begins with compassion for the self and that to cultivate the non-judging mind is the key that opens the heart to generosity and compassion. So, how do we do this? What does the non-judging mind and heart look like? We would surely like one. What does it mean to be free from the inner critic, to be non-judgmental, to know what it means to put this this sniping voice to rest. And that's actually something, I think, to take as a koan into your day, into your practice. What does a non-judging mind actually look like? What does it feel like? And I think to, to really find the answer experientially, we really do need to turn our attention to the judging mind. Embrace its painfulness with exactly the same mindfulness as we would bring to a pain in our body. The Dalai Lama once said, if you want to understand what compassion is, you should look into the eyes of a mother or a father as they cradle their sick and fevered child. And I think it's that quality of compassion that really needs to be brought to the judging mind. Because the judging mind certainly is a tormented, a lost, a very confused mind asking for compassion. 
This compassion, a little bit as we talked about this afternoon, is so much in the heart of all mindfulness, allowing us to see and understand and to find freedom in everything that seems intractable or impossible. We see how much of mindfulness as a present moment experience concerned with embracing and understanding the entirety of each moment with tenderness, with warmth, and with interest. And in the light of that engaged attention, in the light of that engaged mindfulness, I think we come to see that it's, it's quite difficult, if not impossible, to hate or to fear something we truly understand. That actually we only hate from a distance. We hate what we do not understand. And, you know, this can include many things in our lives, but it certainly includes also parts of ourselves. Perhaps we see that the greatest barrier to compassion and freedom is not the pain or the circumstances we meet in our lives, but the greatest obstacle to freedom and compassion is the ongoing tendency to criticize and judge and inflict tremendous harm upon ourselves because it's also armoring ourselves to the possibility of love, of wholeness, of freedom. So we are asked in this practice to look many things in the eye, but I think we're really asked to look the inner critic in the eye, to not be intimidated, to really, in a very real sense, open a dialogue, open a conversation with the inner critic, the inner judge, not just wanting it to go away, but to understand it, to really ask, to really understand what this whole tendency is all about, to judge and blame and criticize. I would suggest, actually, that the whole of the path of liberation, every single thing that we're asked to understand, actually can be found within this judgmental mind, with understanding it. Now, none of us, although it may seem so at times, are born with a judgmental mind. It's a good one to remember. It's a learned and a well-practiced way of seeing and relating. It's constructed. And as such, it can be deconstructed. It is learned, and as such, it can be unlearned. And this is not just about feeling better about ourselves, although we'd all like to do that. It's actually, it is to see that the judgmental mind cannot describe the truth of anything. It's actually not a clear or a truthful mind, because the judgmental mind is not able to see the entirety or the wholeness of anything. So in some ways, the judgmental mind is actually quite the opposite of the mindful mind that sees the the entirety of something. The judgmental mind is really prone to seize upon particulars and mistake them for being the truth. 
And in this, I'd, I'd really like to read you something from uh, a book of Oliver Sacks. And it's a little bit long, so I hope you'll forgive that. But I think it so describes the kind of untruthfulness of the judgmental mind. Rebecca was 19 when she was referred to our clinic, but as her grandmother said, just like a child in some way, she couldn't find her way home. She couldn't open a door with a key. She sometimes put on her clothes the wrong way, inside out, without noticing. She seemed, as her grandmother said, to have no sense of space. She was clumsy and ill-coordinated. One called her a motor moron although when she danced, all her clumsiness disappeared. Rebecca had a partial cleft palate which caused a whistling in her speech, myopia requiring very thick spectacles. She was painfully shy and withdrawn, feeling that she was and had always been a figure of fun. But she formed warm, deep, even passionate attachments. She deeply loved her grandmother, who had raised her, She loved nature and stories, although she never learned to read. She was at home with poetic language and was herself in a stumbling, touching way, a sort of primitive natural poet. She was devout, loved the lighting of the Shabbat candles, going to synagogue and fully understood the liturgy and the symbols in the Orthodox service. All this was possible for her despite the fact that she couldn't count money, read or write, and scored low in all IQ tests. Thus she was a moron, a fool, or so had appeared and been called her whole life, but one with an unexpected, strangely moving poetic power. Superficially she was a mass of handicaps and incapacities, And at this level, she felt herself to be a mental cripple. But on some deeper level, there was no sense of incapacity, but a feeling of calm and completeness, of being fully alive. Spiritually, she felt herself a full and complete being. When I first saw her in the clinic, I saw her merely as a casualty, a broken creature who scored low on all tests. The next time was very different. I came across her in the garden, sitting on a bench, delighting in the beautiful spring day. She sat composed with her face calm and smiling. She could have been any young woman basking in the sunshine. This was my human, as opposed to my neurological vision. She had scored appallingly in all the tests, yet they had given us no inkling of anything but the deficits. They had given me no hint of her positive powers, no intimation of her inner world that was composed, coherent, and poetic. I realized the inadequacy of our evaluations. They failed to show us the beauty of Rebecca, who enjoyed not only a simple but sacred view of nature, who was filled with promise and potential. What I saw in Rebecca, what she showed me, I began to see in all the patients in the clinic. Rebecca was the first to tell me that we paid far too much attention to the defects of our patients and far too little to what was intact or preserved. I think I could end the talk with that, (coughs) but I won't. (laughs) 
Isn't this just what the judgmental mind does? It seizes on appearances. It seizes on particulars and believes it is seeing the whole. It doesn't see beneath appearances. It doesn't see to the possibilities. All of this is excluded. This is not something only we do with others. This is something we can very much do with ourselves. When you read the early texts of the Buddha, you can see the timelessness of this tendency. You know, how much it comes through in the early texts. This is what people struggled with 2,600 years ago. It's what people struggle with today. Now, I would like to look at the self-judgment in, an, in, in a slightly different way. Perhaps not as one of the hindrances, but as a compounded hindrance. As a compounded hindrance that has turned into a belief. If you get a felt sense of any moment that the judgmental mind is operating, you can sort of get a felt sense of the winds of all of the hindrances flowing through. Certainly there's craving. How does craving appear in the judgmental mind? Well, it appears in the form of all the expectations we hold about ourselves or others. The shoulds, the ideas of how of perfection that we ask ourselves to attain to. There is actually no judgment without expectation, without image. And very often the judgmental mind is indicating a failure, the failure we see in us meeting those expectations. Certainly we see the wind of restlessness and anxiety. You know, all the thoughts about how we should be, how we should appear, generate endless thoughts and emotions and and mental activity. Some of you, sometimes people experience this as a sort of, you know, performance anxiety. As if we're, we're performing for life. You know, and so we have to endlessly prepare and rehearse and, you know, get it right. So when we show up, you know, we're kind of word perfect. Anxiety appears in the fear of failure, the fear of failing, fear of imperfection. Anxiety shows up in all the ways that we struggle to meet our shoulds. Certainly in the inner critic, we, we do see the wind of aversion and ill will. Um, directed towards our bodies, our emotions, our thoughts, our meditation, pushing away, blaming, shaming, belittling. And doubt, doubt makes a really powerful appearance, doesn't it, in the inner judge. Self-doubt, doubt in our worthiness, doubt in our loveliness, doubt um, in our capacity to change even. Perhaps the only hindrance that doesn't make a really obvious appearance is sloth and torpor. But I, I think it does. I think it makes a disguised appearance in the form of despair, in the form of numbness, resignation, powerlessness. And of course, what is holding, there's a certain glue 
that is holding all of these hindrance factors together, and it is, guess what? Self-view. It's self-view. The belief in who we are. And who we are not. And that self-view continues to fuel and fire the hindrances. So in a way, this is the, a kind of one of our tasks, is to understand this compound, to loosen the hold of this compound, and to release and let go of everything that is a fabrication, because a construction, because certainly, from the standpoint of Buddhist psychology, any view of self is a fabrication. Any view of self is a construction and cannot describe the entirety of anything. Thomas Martin once said that the essence of a spiritual path is a search for truth that springs from love. And I think that search for what is true begins by questioning the fiction and the ideology of brokenness and incompleteness which is actually all that the judgmental mind speaks of. In the Sufi tradition, in the search to discover what is true, it's said that we should let our thoughts pass through three gates. And at the first gate, we should ask of our thoughts, is this true? And if it is, let it through. At the second gate, we should ask of our thoughts, is this helpful and necessary? You can see the thoughts are getting less and less and less. <laughs> and if so, we should let it go, let it through. And at the third gate, we should ask of our thoughts, is this kind? And this last question is perhaps the most important of all. And my sense is that judgmental thinking fails at all three gates. Not true, not helpful, certainly not rooted in kindness. So then we ask something that is not true, not helpful, not rooted in kindness. What is it that keeps us kind of critical, judgmental thoughts going? Well, the hindrances play a part. Because you know what? judgmental thinking is it's, it's just or you know what the self self-judgment is it's just a thought that is laden with aversion okay it's a thought that's flavored with aversion so here's your example here's an example so so we all turn up here now how would you feel if you just fell asleep on your cushion and kind of fell over <laughs> or started snoring away what happens i mean if that was you in that experience, would you be able to meet that experience with, you know, compassion and generosity and, you know, just think, like, that's a non-event, you know, just pick yourself up and get going again? Or would that event trigger this all-too-familiar cycle of suffering? First, there would be shame and blame. Huh? That might arise. 
then there would become the articulating of that shame and blame. You know, I'm so useless, I'm so terrible, I'm so hopeless, I'm so bad, I'm so wrong, and now everyone knows it. And we have this very rich, notice we have this incredibly rich vocabulary of ill will. You know, and you then you might look around you and see everybody else sitting like a Buddha. You know, so then there's a comparing. They're better than me. You know, they're better than me. They're getting somewhere, you know. To judge oneself, inevitably you need something else to compare yourself to. Either you are comparing yourself to what you imagine others to be and be experiencing, or you are comparing yourself to your own self-constructed ideology of what perfection looks like. Judgment doesn't survive without that comparison. And that can actually, so, okay, so we're comparing. We've got the shame and the blame, you know, and the comparing. Now that sets off craving, doesn't it? Striving. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to be a better yogi, you know. How do I become a better yogi, you know? And maybe I should do this, or maybe I should try that technique, or maybe I could get rid of this. And that creates more, more shooting, more craving, and that can set off quite often dullness and doubt. You know, we just shut down. We just shut down. We just disappear. And dullness and doubt are very closely related. I should go home, you know. And we start telling ourselves a story of impossibility. I can, I can never do this. I, I'm never good enough. I'm not worthy enough. And then, of course, we know the interview groups are coming up and we're going to have this opportunity to tell everybody else in this room about how useless we are. And listen, oh, isn't it such awful when you go to an interview group and you're having a really difficult time, you know, and lost in self-judgment. You go to an interview group and somebody pipes up with such an amazing day they're having, you know, (laughs) and how fantastic their practice is going, you know. And you're sitting there, you know, trying to have this appreciative joy, you know, and and just stop, you know. Now, what is actually happening in this whole storm? You fell asleep, right? That's simple. You know, some years ago, I went, I went to a, a meet, a, 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 an opening of a, of a med- new meditation room at Amaravati Monastery in England, you know, and because it was like this really big thing, you know, like they brought in all these super monks from Thailand, you know, like, you know, like the, really the big guns were there, you know, and, 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 you know, kind of like, you know, we were all sitting down on the stage and all these super ajans, you know, these super monks were up on the stage, you know, their robes, and, you know, the whole thing was all very, like really formal. And, and, you know, like the ceremony, you know, Buddhist ceremonies go on for a long time. And these guys were all jet-lagged, right? I mean, they all just flown in from Thailand. They were old. They were really jet-lagged, you know. And so, like, this ceremony was gone. All these monks were dying, dying, up there, you know. And they were all falling asleep, you know, like this. You know, and I don't think a single one of them felt the slightest bit unhappy about it. <laughs> It was like, wasn't this whole big deal, you know, about how I should look, you know, and, you know, what are people going to think? It was just like, tired, jet-lagged, old, fell asleep. <laughs> you know, end of story. Isn't it? It was also a simple reality, you know, that 
In this imperfect world, we all have difficulties in one way or another. Yet in the moments we get lost in the endless symphony of judgment, we are actually making compounding those difficulties. Now, this cycle of judgment, thought, thought, hindrance, self-view goes round and round and round until it becomes actually a neural rot. It becomes a habit of the mind. You know, they said the other evening, what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. But this actually can become the shape of our mind until all, and it becomes the shape of our world. Until all that we see is what is broken and imperfect. You know, in India there's a saying that when the pickpocket meets the saint in the market, all the pickpocket sees are the pockets of the saint. When we see ourselves or anything only through the eyes of blame or judgment, we also see only what is broken and imperfect. We miss actually what is kind, what is compassionate, what is possible. Now, this is not an encouragement then to switch to some kind of sort of inauthentic affirmation, you know, where we tell ourselves, oh, I'm really so terrific, you know, and I'm really, actually, I'm really amazing. Believe me, it won't work. It won't work if the habits of self-judgment and aversion are embedded. Suzuki Roshi I think he framed this really well when he he said, everything is perfect, but there's a lot of room for improvement. (laughs) It's kind of a good way to hold it, isn't it? Everything is perfect, but there's a lot of room for improvement. Now, I find that very useful, you know, because part of us is kind of like looking to what is well, you know, looking to what shines. But actually, we actually need to know about how to improve, you know. You notice when the, when the inner critic is very prevalent in our life, you know, we find, find it very difficult to receive constructive criticism, don't we? Because we interpret everything as being negative, as being undermining. And yet, how do we grow and learn in our, in our work, in our lives? And this we can receive constructive criticism. We need to be able to receive that, you know? And we need to be able to receive it through the, eye, through the eyes and the mind of the willingness to learn rather than through the eyes and the mind that is really somehow incorporating that into some view of imperfection. Very, very different. So the room for improvement is, is, I'm sure, I mean, I certainly feel it myself. I've got a lot of room for improvement here, you know. And and unless I take that on, I really don't have a path. You know, I don't have a sense of cultivation, and I don't have a sense of learning and deepening. But that, that, that kind of mind that is open to learning is very, very different than the judgmental mind, um, which is following these endless loops of blame and shame and dread. Now, I think the judgmental mind and, the, and the, the, that kind of shape of the mind is really asking us to look much more deeply at this much more hidden world of self-view. Of self-view. The sense of self we are asked to have compassion for is not myself, just self. 
Now, it's so interesting the kind of view of self in which the judgmental mind grows in. You know, it, it, in a way, it's, I also think of this as sort of like a collective, uh, I don't know, um, a collective error, col- cultural error. It's a cultural error, the view of self. It, it, it's kind of like, you know, we can grow up in a culture where, right, almost from the time we're born, you know, we're looking for perfection, we're being compared, we're being evaluated, we're comparing ourselves, we've got all these ideas about who we should be. I mean, it's kind of like part of our culture in some ways, non-acceptance, you know what I mean? You know, we start asking two-year-olds, what are you going to be when you grow up? You know, they've hardly even learned to breathe. And, and, and suddenly they're supposed to think about what they're doing when they're going to university, you know, and who they're going to become. You know, maybe years ago there was a meeting with the Dalai Lama and many Western Dharma teachers, and the Dalai Lama was absolutely astonished to hear about this inner critic thing. He was absolutely astonished. He said, why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> you know, he just couldn't quite get his head around it that anybody would actually do this. It was, and it was so interesting that that was so unknown to him. It was like really speaking a foreign language. Now, one thing I think that's very important, I find it great, very comforting, is the acceptance that I will never have a perfect self. Simply because there is no fabrication that can be perfect. This is very important. I am never going to have a perfect self. There is nothing that is constructed, that is impermanent, that is born of conditions that can be perfect. Just to reflect on that. Now, this teaching encourages us to look at this whole idea of myself as a fabrication born of confusion. Myself, me, is a, fab- a construction born moment to moment of anything that is clung to and identified with. And apart from the clinging and identification, there is no shaping of myself. To compete with, compare myself to, or struggle with, guess who? Yourself. Or the idea of self that I have. Really get a sense of that. I really encourage you to get a sense of that. How many shapes of self you have experienced today? I was happy and then I was really sad, you know, and then I then I really wanted to go for lunch and come and then come and sit, and then I was really dispirited and unhappy. How many today? Anything that is clung to and identified with is shaping the self of the moment, okay? Now, this self is actually an incredibly fragile creature because, you know, sometimes we get the self we like, you know, like maybe you have a decent meditation for a change, you know, and you're just kind of patting yourself on the back, you know, and thinking, well, I'm really doing well now, you know, and, uh, you know, really finally getting, finally got it, you know, everything's going swimmingly, and then you come into the next city, and guess what, you know, your knee hurts, your back aches, your mind's wandered, oh, I'm doing so badly. Is it? What happened to the good self? It's almost like this amnesia, isn't it? 
We've completely forgotten that good self, that shining self, who's been knocked off the shelf, you know, by the survival of this next thing that's being identified with. Now, judgment very much manifests this identification, and it's usually identifying actually with what we deem to be imperfect. But I really want to just get, I hope that you can get a sense in your own mind, in your own experience, of this arising together of the story and the storyteller. I mean, the judgmental mind has a big story to tell. But actually, am I telling the story or is the story telling me? Think about that. Am I telling the story or is the story telling me who I am? Personally, I think it's the latter. Of course, we like to think that I'm in charge here and telling the story. But quite frankly, if you were in charge... (laughs) <laughs> you would probably not be telling the story you're telling. You know, you would probably be telling a completely different story. I am actually not really in charge here. The story is often telling me who I am. Isn't it interesting that we might believe that? But what's interesting to see is that the story, there's a kind of a co-arising Because the story is giving credibility and solidity to the storyteller, who's telling me what a schmuck I am, but the storyteller is also reinforcing the story. It's a a kind of loop that's going on together. It's a sort of toxic marriage, I think of it. It's a sort of toxic marriage. It doesn't do us that good. But maybe there's another way of seeing it's not about wanting the judgmental mind to go away because that can just be more real will can't it I I shouldn't be judgmental (laughs) that one's not going to get us anywhere of course we would like it to go away but actually there's something else that could happen we, we kind of tell ourselves to let go of the judgmental mind but I think we need to redefine our understanding of of how letting go happens. You know, because very often we think, again, this idea that we're in charge, that we can shout at ourselves to let go of something. Well, try telling yourself to let go of judgment. Try telling yourself to let go of aversion. Try telling yourself to let go of doubt. Try telling yourself, you know, shouting at yourself to let go of anything. It's phenomenally unsuccessful, I would say. It's normally unsuccessful. And I think it's a kind of deluded idea. You know, it's a kind of deluded idea that I cling, therefore I have to let go. It's not really how it is. If I believe that I am clinging, which is, of course, another judgment, then I assume this exaggerated responsibility is up to me to let go. Try it. I don't think it works. It never worked for me. Maybe it'll work. Maybe you'll have more success. But I would ne- I've never found myself successful in shouting at myself to let go of anything. Because I don't let go. I realize I've never let go of anything my whole life. Clinging and selfing are really two words for the same process. See that? You know, selfing is shaped by clinging. Huh? The shape of the self of the moment. Sad, happy, angry, you know, uh, upset. 
is shaped by what is clung to in the moment. If I cling to a thought of unhappiness, I become unhappy. It's kind of like a co-arise. If I, if I cling to an aversive thought, I become angry. It's very, it's very clear-cut kind of formula. There's a shaping of the moment. Clinging and selfing are arising simultaneously. So I don't stand outside of that as I am clinging. I don't stand outside of that process as somehow removed observer. I am, I am part of that process of shaping the moment, being shaped by what is clung to. So how, then how does letting go happen? Well, you know how letting go happens? We cultivate the conditions that incline the heart towards releasing and letting go. That's, that's all. There are certain conditions that incline the heart and mind towards clinging and selfing. Confusion, lack of clarity, fear, anxiety, not understood, incline the heart and mind towards clinging and grasping. What inclines the heart and mind towards letting go? Mindfulness, equanimity, balance, being present, seeing clearly, incline the heart and mind to let to letting go. Letting go happens in the light of understanding. Letting go doesn't happen in the light of command. We sometimes think that, you know, because we have had an aversive thought a hundred, you know, sometimes we've had an aversive thought so many times, you know, I am like this, I am so bad, I'm so imperfect. So we believe it more true. But just because you've had the same thought a thousand times doesn't make it true. It actually just shows you what the mind is more inclined to take hold of. And at the central of that, center of that, of course, is this whole ideology of self-view which inclines our hearts towards giving, investing truth in certain thoughts. So much of this practice is actually, you know, I mean, we begin, you know, there is, there's a lot of things we do in this practice. You know, we practice to kind of soften and loosen the grip of the hindrances. That allows us to see more clearly. When we see more clearly, we see the story being told. We see the storyteller seemingly telling the story, or maybe the story is telling the storyteller. This practice of mindfulness we apply to the body, we apply to the body of emotion, but we certainly apply this practice of mindfulness to questioning all of the self-views that are formed, some of them historical, some of them shaped by the moment, because those self-views are very much the root of giving authority and solidity to certain tendencies, particularly the tendency of self-judgment, and it is a self-view of imperfection. It's a self-view of imperfection. We learn to change that just as Oliver Sacks talked about in his story about Rebecca. Not mistaking appearance to be the truth. Not seizing upon particulars. To come to the human view. To see what is possible. What I saw in Rebecca is what she showed me. What she showed me, I began to see in all the patients in the clinic. Rebecca was the first to tell me that we paid far too much attention to the defects and far too little to what was intact. What can be intact, of course, 
what really allows something to be intact is born of our understanding, born of our investigation, and born of our experience. And this is actually what releases the inner critic to to actually see the the ideology of imperfection is actually quite flawed. So if we have a moment, just quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.